0: From the stables in Milton Keynes, home to world-class music, entertainment,
1: if Milton Keynes International
0: Festival, and a whole lot more besides. This is Turn Up The Volume with your host, Nick Coffer.
2: Welcome back to Turn Up The Volume, the podcast which takes you right inside the Stable's venue in Milton Keynes. And today, well, I've got a wonderful episode for you featuring music royalty, a national treasure, although he'll not thank me for saying so, and one of the country's finest singer-songwriters. So we'll hear from Judy Collins, who opens up about her childhood, her new album and her career.
0: Oh, we didn't have any money. My husband said you should go get a job doing something you know how to do. That's how it all came about. He was in school, we were in Boulder, and I got my dad to hook me up with a, a little hostel pesto place where called Michael's Pub, and I got an audition, and from then on, that's how it's gone.
2: Richard Coles talks about life after the cloth, death, anger, grief, and his time in the communards. Well, I ran away to London in
3: 1980 from the Midlands, you know, in an effort to find a livable life as a young gay man. I was 18. And Jimmy Somerville did exactly the same, except he didn't come from the Midlands. He came from working class district of Glasgow. And we met in the sort of commonwealth of gay runaways. In London, we were both living around King's Cross, actually. And we became instant friends, I think because we did kind of share this view that we wanted to find a livable life. And that was one that kind of bound us together in spite
2: of our very obvious differences of class
3: and background and expectation.
2: And I catch up with Maz O'Connor talking about a new album, a new tour, a new book and a new musical too.
4: I
1: think with all artists, that's where the energy comes from. It's places where we feel that we don't quite fit. And I think that if we felt like we fitted somewhere easily, then we probably wouldn't need to make art.
2: That's all coming up in this latest episode of Turn Up The Volume from the stables in Milton Keynes
1: local venue small perfectly formed great atmosphere something
3: really different and it's
2: really local it's just
1: such a cozy intimate environment i
2: get to see bands that i first saw 50 years ago
1: great eclectic mix of music and a really lovely community
2: yes if you're one of our regular listeners i think you know how this all works now exclusive access to artists we all love long format interviews where we really get a chance to delve deeply into what makes them tick And hopefully in listening to these interviews, it'll inspire you to come to The Stables to enjoy its beautifully curated program. Find out more at stables.org or stables.mk across all social media channels. Let's get straight to our first guest. Judy Collins has a voice which has accompanied so many of us for decades. Two of her songs, Both Sides Now and Albatross, both sit easily in some of my all-time favorite tracks. And still she writes, still she tours, still she performs. And as you'll hear in this interview, still she protests too. She's coming to the stables on October the 4th, her first tour since she released her self penned album, Spellbound. I caught up with her from her home in New York, and we first spoke about Spellbound, an album whose genesis goes back to before the pandemic.
0: I began a very intensive poetry writing uh, year in, in 2016, and it really was in order to get off the ground with, with songs. And I really had to, I usually do that, but I would quite often do it at the piano. But then, as I was touring so much, I had to find out a way to get the words into poetry so that I could bring it home and, and see if it worked out as a song. and so that that I did three I actually wrote 365 poems in night, in twenty sixteen i didn't I haven't done that since uh but my, it was a challenge from my husband. he said, don't don't do ninety in days ninety and ninety days do three hundred sixty five days and it every day, which I did. So I got a whole lot of wonderful things out of that challenge.
2: I spent a lot of time with the album and I listened to it a lot uh, when it came out. And it really comes across as a very personal album, autobiographical, actually. And It takes in 1960s Greenwich Village, going further back as well to your childhood in Colorado. Did it feel important to you to, to tell these stories?
0: It's very much a personal journey. And It was not conscious. I didn't go into it thinking, well, I'll tell my life story here. But a lot of it came up because of writing, because of dreaming, because of thinking about the things that really counted in my early development and in the kind of relationships I've had with nature, with friends, with my career, with my parents, with growing up uh, and my Particularly the song that I first started working on from after the poetry writing was a song called Arizona. I had had a situation in 1962 where I was hospitalized with tuberculosis in Arizona. And it's the first time I'd been there. I'm a Colorado girl, but I had not really spent time in Arizona. But I was in quarantine in this gorgeous hospital that had a a view out of the mountains and the canyons and everything. And So I had some time. It was sort of like the pandemic. I had months, about six months of being hospitalized, trying to get well. And in in the Arizona part, I was very compelled to write about that. And that's how Arizona came about.
2: And when you hear that song, you talk about it being a, a very challenging time in terms of your health, but it was also a challenging time in terms of your personal life as well, wasn't it?
0: Oh, yes. My personal life, I had had a big falling out with my husband just before I went away to do another show in Tucson at a place called Ash Alley. And the kids who ran that club turned out to be uh, interns at the hospital and they were interns to a lung doctor. And I had had gurgling lungs for a few months and I wouldn't go to the doctor in New York because I was afraid they told me to slow down. But when he heard me and tapped my chest and looked into what was going on. He said, you're not going anywhere. You have to TB and I'm going to lock you up right here. So it was emotional. I was, by the end of that time, of that six months that it took me to get out of two hospitals in Arizona and Colorado, my, my, my marriage was over.
2: I'll tell you what really comes across in that song and other songs is, is how vivid Uh, the memories are in these songs. I wonder, is that the power of music? Is that its ability to take you back somewhere so clearly, so vividly?
0: Oh, that's very much a part of it because when when you settle the melody into the lyric and it matches and it takes you someplace that you wouldn't know you would have gone, there is something very mysterious and very mystical about that combination. You know, I think about a lot of these American songbook writers who wrote separately, you know, Rogers and Hart, Rogers and Hammerstein. It's an interesting question. I don't, uh, I have written with, I've wrote with a little bit with Ari Hess and I made an album with him in 2016, which was nominated for Grammy. And he was the one who really kicked it off for me to get into this writing of, of this album of Spellbound, because it was an experience that I hadn't had really seriously writing with somebody else. And also I let him look at a lot of lyrics that were half done and he made suggestions and helped me. So in a way, I had a co-writer that I didn't really know about. He didn't do a lot with my songs, but here and there there was a word or there was a phrase and it helped. There's a
2: gorgeous track on the album called When I Was a Girl in Colorado. And Judy, that girl in Colorado loved music, loved playing the piano, was a very, very fine pianist. And had you followed the advice of your piano teacher at the time, you'd never have picked up a guitar.
0: That's absolutely right. <laughs> she was not happy. I was in the middle of, of learning a Rachmaninoff second piano concerto, the hard one, da 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 and I was getting it, I had it memorized, and uh, I was getting it up to speed. And I turned on the radio, it was 19, I was 15, and I heard the Gypsy Rover, and the next week I heard Barbara Allen. And that settled the deal. I decided that I had to get a guitar, and I had to sing those songs, and I had to go tell her that I was not going to continue working on the rock Boninoff. And so we we parted ways, but not as friends and not as collaborators, because I then made a movie about her called *Antonia: Portrait of the Woman*, and I was nominated. My my director, my co director, and I were nominated for a, an Oscar in 1975 for that movie. So she she got to go to the Oscars and meet Robert Redford.
2: You know, just just, uh, touching on on that Colorado period briefly again, because it's really easy for interviewers like me. It's stating the obvious for interviewers like me when we look at the influence of parents uh, and the influence that those parents had on the artist. But your grit, your determination, your incredible work ethic, here you are still touring into your 80s. These can all be traced in many ways to your dad, can't they?
0: Absolutely. We went On Monday night, we went here in New York to see a play about Eisenhower. General Eisenhower, President Eisenhower. I'm very close with his, da- his granddaughter, Susan. And I called her the next day and I said, have you seen this? She said, yes. And then we talked about it. And I said, you know, it inspired me to go back and try to put together a theater piece about my father, the music, the training, the, the fantastic influence that he was on me. because And that was, you know, how she felt about her grandfather, that he was just this tremendous Influence. And she's a brilliant woman and has done amazing things in her life. And I think it's all because of this parental influence in my own life. And I do want to tell his story. I was asked to do an interview about On the Road, and it's based on Jack Kerouac. But as I began talking about it, and the reason that he called me was that I'm on the road all the time. And I said, I have letters, 15, I mean, 30, 40, 50 letters from my father written on a typewriter in the my father was blind, so he didn't drive. So he had a driver, and when he was on tour in the early in the nineteen thirties and forties, the end of the thirties, the beginning of the forties, he wrote these letters to my mother, and they have survived. And they are extraordinary letters. So it's very important for me to have seen that piece on Monday, but also to talk to Susan about it. And we really discussed how powerful it is to have a parent who leads the way in some way and challenges us to do the best we can with what we have.
2: And doesn't it show how wonderful it is to, to keep those written records? I had a similar thing actually with my grandfather who wrote uh, many letters to my grandmother uh, during the Second World War. And you, you kind of wonder what my children are going to find. I mean, will it be sort of WhatsApp conversations or text messages? The, the beauty of that written word is, is so powerful, isn't it?
0: It's very powerful. And I think it all comes down to journal keeping and doing what you want to do, and being honest with your own direction, and not trying to follow the crowd, and always being on point about your your determined uh, life and what you want to do in it.
2: Do you know, thinking about my own children, um, I try to imagine how. A 15 or 16 year old Judy was able to confidently rock up to Greenwich Village and join that folk scene, play Folk City, play the bottom line. Were you incredibly confident, very determined, quite lucky, or perhaps a bit of A, a bit of B, and a bit of C?
0: Oh, I think it was a combination of all those things. I was very determined. Oh, we didn't have any money. My husband said, You should go get a job doing something you know how to do. That's how it all came about. And he was in school, we were in Boulder, and I got my dad to hook me up with a a little um, pasta and pesto place where called Michael's Pub, and I got an audition, and from then on, that's how it's gone.
2: And of course, what helped you is that you had an eye, an eye for a great song, perhaps penned by someone who didn't yet have the profile that they deserved. I wonder whether it required a different approach, singing a song rather than your song.
0: Oh no, it's all the same. You have the same challenge when you write your own song as you do when you sing one by Sondheim or by (laughs) by Leonard Cohen. It has to be up to standard. It has to be the way it should be. And so the general line is sing it the way I see it.
2: And yet, correct me if I'm wrong, in the States, if you sing someone else's song, no matter how big the hit, you don't earn a dime, do you?
0: No, we, have, we are the only country in the world, the only country in the free world, who does not have a royalty for performance. So let's say Joni Mitchell has made millions and millions of dollars on both sides. Now, I've never made a cent from the radio royalties. There are none. Uh, I and uh, Frank Sinatra have never made a penny on any song that we sang of somebody else's. And it still goes. We're still fighting it. It is a bill which passed in 1939. I have my suspicion that it was uh, LBJ who helped to push it through because he was in Congress and he had started buying radio stations in Texas, putting them in his own, in his wife's name and Lady Bird's name. That's my suspicion. But it has lasted for 39 years. Everybody for for a hundred, for, uh, for 84 years because I'm 84, I was born in 39, I was born the year this bill passed, and uh, it is trouble for us, because the, uh, us who, who sing other people's songs, because we don't, we don't get that rate. By the way, if an English person has a hit here in, the, here in this country, they don't get paid anything either, because we don't have reciprocal. I don't get paid in England, because we don't have reciprocal from English artists who sing here. It is a trouble. It's all over the world that everybody else gets the 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 performance royalty for singing somebody else's song. But here in this country, I don't. We don't. I just wrote a long piece. I'm sure he thought I went on and on about it, but nobody knows it. In fact, artists don't know it. I once called Bette Midler. When I found out, I didn't know about this until a couple of years ago when I went to Congress with the Sam Moore of Sam and Dave, you know, he and He and Sam and Dave, they wrote many, many songs, but they also sang other people's songs. So they were at the Congress talking with me. And afterwards, Joyce, his wife, said to me, you know, when we were here 10 years ago, we got death threats after having appeared before Congress. Everybody's gone on appearing before Congress trying to get this bill changed. They haven't. The, The radio lobby is so heavy and so powerful and so rich. But they they come to these meetings too and they sit behind beside you gloating and they know they can't they can't get to, they can't, can't turn this.
2: We've spoken a few times before and I think by now you know that I'm a bit of a, a romantic when it comes to creative pursuits and I wonder whether the story you're telling there suggests that you did this purely for the art. You sung these songs because they were great songs you you, you recorded them because you wanted to record them not for any financial gain.
0: You know, we didn't know about this. I didn't know. Nobody told me. My record company didn't tell me. Nobody ever said. You know, you're not getting a royalty from the from the radio play on these songs. When the internet started, the radio channels, the internet went to Congress and said, "We want the same deal that the land that what they call um, the land lines get. You know, CBS, NBC, ABC, all the all the channels that." We're playing all of our songs for all those years. And uh, the government said, no, that the, the, the public owns the radio waves. You have to pay the artist. Well, that was fine. Then Sirius Radio tried to pull a few numbers on us. Sirius Radio decided that they would not pay the royalty. They would do that, but they would not pay the royalty on anything made before made. Made before 1972. Well, most of my big hits were early, so I have. I think there are organizations at this point that are trying to track plays and trying to get us paid as much as they can. But it's a disaster for us financially. You know, we get not only that, but our big. You know, we hear a lot about SAG after right now because of the strikes. SAG after. I've been in SAG after forever. In in 2019 just before the pandemic, SAG-AFTRA pulled the healthcare uh, off of everybody who's over 70 years old. So everybody's trying to, you know, screw us, if you'll pardon my French. And uh, so I'm not very happy with SAG-AFTRA and not, not, not everybody over, under, uh, over 70 is happy. They're very unhappy about
2: and might this explain in part why you're still on tour why you still perform why you still uh, tour the world you're you're coming to the UK of course you're going to be at the stables on uh, October the 4th is that part of the reason
0: of course it is i mean i i make a living but i don't make a big living and i don't have the kind of income that would allow me to say oh let me take a year off and go live in spain or something that's not where i am but i will have to say that the the planet and life on the planet provides you with reasons to continue doing what is needed on the planet. And I believe that what I do is needed. I know that I provide something that's essential to people's mental and physical and emotional health and my own. So in a way, I would suppose that I would be on the road anyway. When I was interviewed by the Washington Post, after I, when I was going down to Washington with the Grammy people to plead about this uh, performance royalty situation, they said, you know, in the paper the next day, they said, you know, Judy Collins is going have to have to travel all her life because she doesn't get uh, a royalty. Nobody listens to this. Nobody really understands it. Nobody, even the even the performers who are affected by it. Well, they don't know what to do. We used to think that Barbara Streisand was a little criminal because she would take a piece of the publishing from songs that she recorded, and we thought that was not 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 very not very above board. But now we understand why. Yeah, because this way she was paid because the publishers are paid on the songs. That's why Joni Mitchell is a billionaire, and I'm not. <laughs>
2: Well, Judy, you know you know that I speak to you as much as a fan, uh, as a podcast host here, and you've certainly been alongside me for as long as I can remember. And when you say that you touch people and you play a role in their lives, uh, there is no doubt that that is the case with people like myself and 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 the thousands and millions of people who love your music. And we're looking forward to having you uh, back in the country at the stables. So, I want to finish with this, uh, Judy, because when we last spoke, which was possibly maybe five years ago, it was certainly pre-pandemic. I recall you speaking about the fact that you were always seeking answers to questions to understand yourself to understand your past your grief your losses you sound really serene on the album and actually you sound really serene here today have you finally got the answer
0: <laughs> i've always had the answer the answer is to work to live to have friendships to do your very best and to read a lot of uh, marcus aurelius
2: judy absolutely lovely to catch up with you as always and we're really looking forward to having you back in the country
0: that's a pleasure. I look forward to it. And thanks so much again for a wonderful, wonderful interview, Nick. Thank you.
2: Now, she always surprises me when I speak to her. Still fiery, still passionate, still brilliant. Judy Collins in concert at the Stables on October the 4th. Ticket details from stables.org. Coming up shortly, I've got a lovely interview with Mazo O'Connor, who's also going to sing live for us. But first, Richard Coles. Now, you'll hear in this interview what he feels about being called a national treasure. Spoiler alert, he doesn't like it much, but it's fair to say that he has reached that status. He recently left the BBC and also left the priesthood, two huge changes for a man whose whole life has been defined by change and indeed loss. He's back on the road, touring his one-man show, which will take in his time in the church, in the communards, on the BBC, and the challenges he's faced in recent years, not least in the young death of his husband David. I was able to chat to Richard about all these things ahead of his appearance at the stables in October, and I started by asking him how the de was going. Well,
3: I mean, I am devickering, inevitably, because that's what happens when you stop being a vicar. Some of it I sort of feel reasonably OK with, and some of it has been rather surprisingly weird. I didn't realize, and, you know, more fool me, the extent to which I'd been defined by the role, I think, when I stopped doing the role, I had to really struggle sometimes to work out what was the point of me.
2: It's interesting because you talk about the identity and, and working out what the point is. Because I, I looked at your story and it struck me there's been a lot of departures from the communards, from the church, as you just mentioned, from the BBC, parts of your life which were huge parts of your identity. And I wonder whether they're, they're all hard in their different ways, the losses, the changes, the, the transition. Well, that's interesting. I mean, the, the, I
3: think it's really because of my kind of restless nosiness, which means, and also I think... Um, overactive imagination, which means that I find it easy to imagine myself um, in fresh fields and pastures new, and that has always had huge appeal for me. Um, So I think I've sometimes accelerated those processes without fully realising quite what I was leaving behind. And inevitably, if you change from one thing to another, it requires you to leave things behind. Um, I think about that much more now, actually, than I used to. But I've always reserved the right to travel um, singly and as lightly as possible. Although I've kind of handed that right back now because I'm uh, not single and I'm pretty settled now.
2: <laughs> is it a desire in a way to to free yourself up when, when you take on these changes, these transitions? Is it in a way to free yourself up, to talk more freely, be more free, be more yourself?
3: I don't know. I think it's sort of restlessness. I mean, I grew up in Kettering in the 1960s and 70s. And so my first kind of conscious thought was Where is the life beyond here? And I think it kind of shaped me, um, and I've remained shaped in that way, that I am always kind of curious about what's over the horizon. Um, I think I would have made rather good explorer in the olden days um, if
2: I'd perhaps been more physically optimised for the more onerous aspects of that role. Thinking about the um, the roles that you've had, going back to those roles, and, and these are all roles which come with, I'm going to say, a certain status, perhaps even a, a certain prestige, very different versions of status, very different versions of prestige, but status and prestige all the same. And I'm not certain I'm using the right words here, but I do wonder whether status and prestige are something that you've always been attracted towards. And if the answer happens to be yes, Richard, do you know where that comes from?
3: Well, the answer is yes. Yes. Um not just in myself, but in others too. And I'm slightly embarrassed to admit that, but the evidence of my life is fairly conclusive, I think. Um, I think for myself, it comes from when I was a teenager. My father, who was a shoe manufacturer in the Midlands, uh, well, that sector collapsed and with it went um, our um, place in the ranking of my world, if I can put it that way. And I think I was rather affected by that. And I think I've always been determined to uh, make my own way in the world. Trouble is, do you know what I have? I realize now, my best friend Matthew, I mean, since I was a little boy, we were at school together, he pointed out to me that there has always been a hard nosed Midland manufacturer in me. And I think <laughs> that's true. But that's intention, of course, with the version of me that I wish to put into the world, which is of someone who is critical of materialism, a socialist, a Christian. Um, but then, hey, I'm a mess of contradictions. Guess what?
2: <laughs> this notion of, uh, of the you, of the Richard that you put out into the world actually really fascinates me because we all know you as the urbane, uh, calm, whimsical even vicar who, who's on the radio. And you are all of these things, but everything also has its flip side. And when I was thinking about the storied life you've had, I wondered how, how much of it has actually been driven or coloured by anger. Oh, that's an
3: interesting question. You're not the first person to ask that either, Nate. Um, well... I don't particularly like being angry. For me, it feels like a sort of flu, and um, I don't like it. I tend to find it easy to regret things I have done in anger. But it is impossible to live your life in the world with any integrity at all if you don't run into people and circumstances that do make you angry. And I think I would just like to be a bit better at handling it. The other thing, of course, I've been obliged through my work, both. As a vicar, but also as a BBC presenter, to keep a lid on my own feelings and opinions sometimes. And now I don't have to do that. I find that the pot was a bit more bubbly than I thought it was. (laughs) And I have felt quite angry lately. And I think that's partly because I've had to stop buttoning it up um, in order to serve the institution in which I found myself. But I don't like being angry. It's not, it's not, anger is, of course, one of the deadly sins. And I think sometimes our culture, Accounts it a virtue. Maybe there is a quite a righteous anger, I guess. But I don't particularly want to be angry. I think it makes me make bad decisions. And also, I think I probably look a bit ridiculous. I look like <laughs> Basil Fawlty hitting the car of the tree, the branch of a tree. Has it shocked those around you? Has it come out in unexpected moments? I think those around me who I keep close have seen the best and the worst of me over <laughs> very many years now. So probably not. I'm less angry than I was. I'm calmer than I was, and I'm more circumspect than I was i am less ambitious than I was. And I suppose all that stuff comes, they're very closely related, those impulses, aren't they? And I think they've just died down a little bit, whether that's age or fulfilment or conviction, I don't know.
2: We can't have you coming to uh, the stables and not talk about, obviously, the musical part of your career. Uh, tell us about the, the young Richard Coles who, who met Jimmy Somerville.
3: Well, I ran away to London in 1980 from the Midlands, you know, in an effort to find a livable life as a young gay man. I was 18. And Jimmy Somerville did exactly the same, except he didn't come from the Midlands. He came from a working class district of Glasgow. And we met in the sort of Commonwealth of Gay Runaways in London. We were both living around King's Cross, actually. And we became instant friends, I think, because we did kind of share this view that we wanted to find a livable life. And that was one that kind of bound us together in spite of our very obvious differences of class and background and expectation. And of course, Opposites often form close bonds, and I certainly did with Jimmy. And then to my immense good fortune, he turned out to be one of the most spectacularly gifted singers of the era, which I didn't know at first. Um, and so that was good for me. And I kind of hitched my, my wagon of musical gifts, which were not particularly notable, mm-hmm. to his exceptional musical gift.
2: It's well documented though, isn't it, that you pretty much hated the attention that Jimmy got. When the Communards went stratospheric, you really didn't like the fact that he got all the glory. Well,
3: it was already stratospheric for for Jimmy, if you see what I mean. So Bronsky Beat happened, and then I came into Bronsky Beat after it had achieved its first success to play saxophone. So I was just a hired hand. And then when Jimmy and I left, we formed Communards as equal partners. But of course, Jimmy's prestige was enormous, and his recognition was enormous. And nobody knew who I was. And there was this kind of rather grotesque, monstrous, greedy part of me that resented him getting all the attention because I wanted some of that attention too. My ego wanted feeding. And um, I was dumb, really. And I just I didn't realize that, of course, um, things all in good time with that sort of thing. But also, I think I probably got a better deal of it than Jimmy did because I think Jimmy was more defined by... What he did then, because he was so good at it and because he was so famous. I think I was allowed a bit more latitude in doing other things because I was not particularly notable or noticeable.
2: Opposites attracting to fiery personalities, jealousy, envy. Did it ultimately just implode?
3: Uh, not really. I mean, it, it was very difficult relation. I mean, well, I love Jimmy. I still do. He's a remarkable person. I hold him in the highest respect and love too. But he was difficult to be around because... He was exceptionally gifted, and I lost of exceptionally gifted people. He could be a sort of bonfire, really, and suck up the light and the fuel. And also, he was not someone who was noted for his restraint. And I was the opposite of that, I suppose. And so sometimes I found if ever we had something we needed to sort out a difficulty, a disagreement, I would be Machiavelli, and he would do nuclear war, <laughs> and that's not a great combination. that in particular, was very good at being Machiavellian, and. um And so we didn't really understand each other. And we did, that made a lot of of our relationship very difficult. And after a while, it became impossible. Uh, This often happens in bands, of course. And so we, but I think we still had enough regard for each other not to, to sort of lapse into acrimony. So we just decided we were going to have a break in 1987. And we're still on that break in 2023.
2: I do wonder how the uh, Jimmy of today and the Richard of today, knowing what you both know, and if you'd known it back then, how it would have been different if the, you know, the 60, 61-year-old yous had, had been together 40 years ago. Well,
3: oh, that's an interesting question. I mean, I know there are certain ways which I'd have been different. I'd have been less self-regarding. I would have been less preposterously um, uh, egocentric. And I would have been more long-sighted, I think. And I think I would have tried to work out ways of making my professional relationship with Jimmy more fruitful.
2: But if you knew then what you know now, you wouldn't know what you know now. I, I want to move on. Um, look, I've I've thought of a million different ways of asking this next question because I'm sure you've been asked it in a million different ways. And I've got to be honest, I haven't actually found uh, the right answer because you, you all have been asked. You know how how do you go from a life of pop stardom and drug benders to basically a, a life of the cloth? So I'm racking my brains how to ask it differently. And I guess from the outside, we view it as you know troubled soul finds God, then all's grand and sorted. But surely it's not just that easy. Surely finding God is no panacea to all of the problems that went before.
3: Well, absolutely. Um, uh, I mean, you don't really find God. God finds you. Well, that was, was my experience. And when God did find me, I sort of realised that actually I'd been loitering on the threshold of that for years and years, but I, I wasn't aware of it. So on the contrary, I thought it would be absolutely the last place I would ever find myself at home would be in a church. But actually it was one of the first places I found myself at home because I was a chorister when I was a kid. And I grew up in the Anglican tradition, singing music to a very high standard. And I think I just liked being in that building. I liked the architecture, I liked the noise it made, I liked the people, I liked everything about it. I didn't like having to believe in God, which seemed a most ridiculous fairy tale, and nobody mm-hmm. in his right mind could do that. And then after a period of kind of great turbulence in the eighties. I remembered how I had felt when I had been in chapel when I was a boy, when it was a good feeling. And I wanted to connect with it again because it seemed important to me that there might be stuff happening in my life that I should take there. I wasn't sure why, it was really a conscious thought. Um, and so I did. And the minute I stepped over the threshold, I realised it had been waiting for me forever, really. So, I mean, it was two things. It, it, it was a sort of very dramatic conversion experience but within a long context that um, reached a moment of awareness at
2: that point. Perhaps just a desire for a certain serenity.
3: Well, that would be good, wouldn't it? Although the funny thing is, if you go into Christianity expecting serenity, you're most likely to be disappointed because what you get is challenge, actually. Um, And and I think probably that's really what I found most compelling and find most compelling about it is not repose or calm or tranquility. It's challenge. It makes you think. It makes you confront the reality of yourself and your place in the world. And there's no dodging the difficult questions that follow that. And You have to find a way of living with that. And it's really hard.
2: And of course, those questions lead us on to the last taboo, death, the question around death. And I am very much an atheist. However, I recently experienced a, a very personal bereavement. And I can honestly say that I found some of the um, uh, the Jewish rituals very, very calming, very, very helpful, very therapeutic. My word, Judaism really does death very well, as I'm sure you know. Um, you obviously lost your husband, David, uh, a little over three years ago. I wonder whether there was any comfort to be found in your faith or or did his young passing insight, going back to anger, insight kind, some kind of a, a fury in you, which leads you to question what it's all about? Well... That's,
3: again, I mean, I think others say that and perhaps see that in me. I'm not really conscious. I mean, it hasn't affected my faith at all because my faith has never relied on me getting a lucky break, if you see what I mean. I've never thought that it meant that I would be spared the rigours of life. On the contrary, I think it's about embracing them, really. So David's death did not undermine my sense of uh, the reality of God and, and my relationship with the reality of God. It undermines lots about me, I think. The funny thing is, you know, Nick, and I'm very interested what you say about that. And uh, if I could pick a religion just for the bits and bobs, it would be Judaism. And one of the reasons would be, well, sitting shiver, for example. I love the Jewish rituals around death because they're, they're complex. They involve everybody. They're pragmatic. I think it's all good stuff. And we have our own versions of that in the Church of England. And I prided myself, I pride myself, in fact, on doing a good funeral. But when I suffered my own bereavement, I just the whole thing was just an ordeal. I just wanted it to be over, and I realised that one of the reasons why people continue to come for churches or to shul for funerals or temples is because you just want somebody who knows what they're doing, will get
2: you through the day. Because when it happened to me, I just thought, I just want this to be over. Mm. And you're right, because that's, of course, what the Jewish faith and the Jewish community does, is because it, it picks you up, doesn't it? It, it wraps you in a, in a protective coating for those seven days, uh, then you're left to your own devices. But it really is that sense of having people around you who, who, who you can turn to.
3: Yeah, and it does articulate something very important, which is this is one of the most significant and solemn and taxing and life-changing moments that you will ever experience.
2: And on Wednesday, we're going to go to Grzynski's and buy some chopped liver.
4: Life goes on, right?
2: I I tell you, as a quick final thought, because I don't want this to be a a theological discussion, but what I found really interesting, I'm very good friends with Charlie Baginski, who is a rabbi, and she's the chief executive of liberal Judaism. And she was telling me that basically, the elders 2,000 years ago were, were the forerunners of psychologists and therapists. And I found this really interesting. She said, yeah, they really understood grief. They really understood bereavement. They really understood the cycle. And it did get me thinking, again, as this atheist that I am around how much of religion is actually founded in really good early common sense. I think that's right. And because it's community-based and because uh, we
3: have many centuries of reflection on the experience of dealing with the reality of life in all its light and shade. So um, uh, I think often people are... I think people sometimes think religious people are rather disembodied spiritual creatures who don't really engage with the reality of life. And of course, it's exactly the opposite is the case. And the people I think who do have the most impressive uh, spiritualities are the people who seem most fully engaged with the reality of life. A paradox, perhaps. And, uh, and I think the other thing that makes us perhaps good in that sort of way at being useful to people in moments of crisis is that we've seen it a hundred times before. And most people, it's a pretty uh, kind of similar sort of experience. Not always. There are always outliers, of course. And every every experience is unique. But there are certain shapes that it conforms to. And after a while, you get to know what those shapes are. And it means that you simply are able to walk alongside somebody perhaps a bit more confidently because you know what this landscape is and you know what maybe lies
2: ahead. Yeah, and they shape are what form our family systems and our communities and uh, and all of the structures that we rely on. Uh, I'm going to do a screeching gear change here because we've got to talk about the tour. It's coming uh, uh, to the stables. You're sold out of the stables, but you can put your name down on the waiting list uh, if there are any returns. Uh, listen, it's a tour, it's music venues. Is this your way of going back to where it all started? Well, I mean, I've done just on a book tour,
3: because, uh, and, and essentially I'm now in my 60s, staying in the hotels I stayed in when I was in my 20s. <laughs> the decor has changed, and indeed my own personal decor has changed quite significantly, carrying a bit more timber now. But it is interesting to note that after the twists and turns of my own life, here I am again, walking out onto a stage and trying to entertain a crowd. The difference is, is that I'm, I'm talking to the crowd now, and I'm not standing behind an instrument or making up a song. It's, uh, I'm trying to have a, an interesting time talking to people and giving them a chance to talk back to me. So how does it work? It's you on a stage telling stories? Kind of, yeah. Trying to, I mean, the the sort of germ of the show is that um, someone once described me as a national treasure, which is an occupational hazard if you're kind of in the media and over 60, sooner or later, someone will start doing that. Um, and my, and David, my late husband, uh, said, you're not that at all. I said, well, I know but He said, i grant you borderline national trinket <laughs> so that's my starting point and it's about um how i seem to have arrived at this very interesting you know yesterday nick i went to interview michael palin who is a real national treasure yeah. and i realized that my tensions towards that time i particularly wanted to actually have very mixed feelings about it but i'm very much in the foothills um, of his himalaya if you see what i mean <laughs> um but, but but i'm i'm interested in how you get there and what people mean when they think you're that. And also how you try to live your life when the expectation of those around you, and obviously this comes out of bickering as well, is that you are a certain kind of person thinking certain kinds of thoughts. And, you know, you need to preserve your right to think your own thoughts and to be the person you are and to change and to experience life. And that might not always be to the taste of those around you.
2: So let's accept that you are a national treasure and let's, uh-huh. let's, so let's finish with this. If I'd said to the 20-year-old, let's say the 20-year-old Richard Coles, that 40 years later, he would be well and truly ensconced in the ranks of official national treasure or small trinket, however you want to call it, what would his response have been? Perhaps, let's say, in five words or less.
3: Absolutely, 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 absolutely delighted.
2: Richard's coming to the stables on October the 26th. The evening's sold out, but do keep an eye on the website or get in touch with the box office just in case there are any returns. You can also keep up to speed with Richard on Twitter and on Instagram. Just search for Rev Richard Coles. This is turn up the volume from the stables in Milton Keynes and let's finish today with Maz O'Connor, an artist I've long loved. Drawing from across the spectrum of folk music, her beautifully crafted songs speak of heartbreak, love, loss and a constant searching for answers. Musically and at times vocally, she reminds me of Liz Fraser from the Cocteau Twins. And anyone who knows me knows that that is the highest of praise. Her latest album, What I Wanted, sees Maz seeking connection and meaning under the backdrop of London's nights. It's gorgeous and she'll be bringing these new songs to the stables on the 5th of October. When I spoke to Maz she took me back to the time just after the first lockdown when she started recording her new album with Will Gardner.
1: Yeah I think lockdown to me and probably for a lot of people uh, made me reflect on sort of patterns that I'd gotten into and and habits and in in general in my life but you know especially my music and in my artistic practice and so, I'd, I'd spent lockdown exploring sort of new directions I might want to go in. And my friend Will Gardner uh, is a composer. And I'd sort of, I knew him a bit at uni and we, we had a very good mutual friend, but we'd never worked together before. And he was working and still works in like quite a different part of music to me. So, you know, I'm doing uh, mostly folk music and I'm a songwriter and I'm touring. And and Will was doing, um, electronic and instrumental composition, like mostly for film and TV and things like that. So I just thought it would be a cool like collaboration and perhaps something that would be out of the ordinary and would kind of, you know, shock me out of those habits and patterns. And I was really up for that after lockdown because I, you know, I kind of hadn't really realized that I was getting a little bit stuck in a rut creatively. Um so yeah, I just reached out to Will and I said, should we, should we get together now that we can? and um, now that we can meet in person and see what happens and we didn't really have much of a plan I certainly didn't say the words album let's make an album to mm-hmm. him and <laughs> um, but yeah we, we started writing together and uh, the way it would work would be that we would kind of generate like musical ideas together um, and then I would take that away and, and write the song over the top and then bring the song back to him and we would then work on it together um, and pretty soon we got into a, a nice rhythm and, and started making music that I felt was, was challenging and exciting to me, whilst not kind of losing the heart of what I do, which is quite lyric based and like quite storytelling based. But I felt that what he was bringing musically was, was different and exciting and was pushing me and challenging me. And we also just really liked working together. So pretty soon we had enough songs to start thinking about, you know, making it into an album.
2: You make it sound so easy, but I know you've never been a a big fan of co-writing and I wonder whether that's down to any of wanting to be in control, perhaps some insecurities, perhaps not finding the right person.
1: Yeah, I think it's all of that. Um, And I think the good thing about working with Will um, was that, like I say, first of all, we we didn't put any pressure on it. So sometimes there's co-writing it's organized by like your manager or by your label or by your publisher or somebody in your team as a musician and they sort of hook you up with somebody that you don't know and sometimes I don't know if this is the right reaction but sometimes I've taken that a bit personally and been a bit like oh okay you think I need help from this person you know um, and it can be a bit sort of tense and, and there's like pressure on it to come out with a song and you don't know this person and you might not like vibe very well or, or whatever you know and um, so it's yeah in the past it's not been something that I've really enjoyed but with will we were more just hanging out and making music and seeing what happened and there wasn't pressure on it and I think importantly with will we have very different skill sets so it's not like anybody's like treading on each other's toes it's like we're both sort of creating something like bringing something to the table that the other person can't bring and I think that's the best kind of collaboration so I've definitely learned a lot from working with Will which is that I don't hate co-writing it just has to be right.
2: And you've also created what in many ways is a new sound for you because we know your established acoustic sound this new album as you've hinted there incorporates a lot of lo-fi electronic elements too the intro to Jessica in particular is is really really gorgeous Um, this is quite a departure for you isn't it?
1: Yeah I I suppose it is Um, I think. Yeah, we we were so that intro to Jessica, for example, um, actually started with me on the violin. I'm a, a, a very average violin player. I learned it at school and I didn't keep it up. Um, but yeah, I'm just playing a rhythm on the violin, and it went through something called an OP one, which is this really cool piece of kit. It's like a tiny, tiny little keyboard, and I don't know how it works, but um, Will does. <laughs> and you like you put an acoustic sound into it, whether that's the violin or my voice or whatever. And then you can mess around with it on this OP one. So you can like enter an acoustic sound into the piece of kit. And then you can like mess with it from there. So you can like put the pitch up by like three octaves or down by three octaves. Or you can speed it up, slow it down, and totally kind of bend the tempo of it and stuff like that. So I think that's what we did with the violin on Jessica. So it's kind of it is an acoustic sound to begin with, but then we mess with it. And that's that was kind of what we did with all of the electronic sounds on the album is that they have an acoustic beginning. You know, nothing is like just taken from a, a sample of a computer. It's all a sound that we made um, originally, like acoustically. And a lot of it is my voice actually that we've manipulated. Um, but I just wanted I just wanted something different. And I think, yeah, it had been a long lockdown, hadn't it? And, <laughs> and it was a long two years that we were working together. And I just kind of the lockdown just made me think, look, if there's stuff you want to do, you should just do it. Time to play. That's it. Time to play. And there's no guarantees. And, you know, I didn't know if I was frankly going to have a career after the pandemic anyway. So I thought, well, you know, this is the time to experiment and explore and, and try something new.
2: And now everyone wants an OP1.
1: <laughs> yeah, I think they're incredibly
4: expensive, but yeah.
2: <laughs> Listen, in uh, in Soho, a track on the album, you repeatedly refer to home or to going home. And that got me thinking about home for you, roots, identity, uh, something you've always wrestled with, uh, be that in terms of your own personal roots and identity, your musical roots and identity. So let's start with the the personal side of that, because I find it really interesting with you. You grew up in a working class town, but you wanted to go to London to be an artist. You went to Cambridge University, but you felt on the outside there again, having strong Irish roots, but also being, well, very English. Do these contrasts, these tensions fuel your music?
1: Mm, wow. Well, that's a deep question. Um, <laughs> I think they must. I think with all artists, that's where the energy comes from. It's places where we feel that we don't quite fit. And I think that if we felt like we fitted somewhere easily, then we probably wouldn't need to make art. That's, kind of, that's, that's where I've come to because I think when I was younger, I just wanted to be one thing or the other. And I didn't like that feeling of being in between or having this tension of identities, But as I get older, I kind of realize like, oh no, that's what makes you unique and that's what makes you interesting. And also I think everybody has some version of that. You know, very few people are kind of purely one thing. And, and especially now, and so many of us have like migration to one extent or another, like in our family background, e- even if that's migration from your hometown. To another town or another city like we're, we're all kind of made up of loads of different influences and and i think that's actually yeah like you say it's where it's where the energy comes from and where the music comes from i think the difficulty maybe that i've found is like translating that um to what is horribly called the market so like you know as a musician you've you've kind of got to be able to like clearly describe what you are so that the market like knows what you are. Do you know what I mean? And that's the bit that I've always struggled with because I'm I'm not I don't fit into a simple box. And sometimes I think things might have been easier in some ways if if I did, but I never did. And, and I always found you know, for example, just doing folk music when when I was growing up, I did a lot of traditional Celtic folk music. And after a while, I just got really bored and I I wanted to write and I wanted to expand and do all kinds of different creative things. And that's very natural. But I think, you know, there's lots of opportunities and, and gigs and there's a career if you just do the trad folk thing. And I may have sacrificed some of that in order to feel more true to myself as an artist. And that's something I, you know, have to kind of make my peace with.
2: And that really touches on the the musical identity question as well. As you say, you've got your traditional folk songs on the one hand and then you have more mainstream pop folk on the other and and how to actually tally those in your music. And then there's the pressure which you touch on uh, as well to write the great hook, to to have songs which will work well on the radio, songs which will be lovely when sung live, songs which will appeal to uh, perhaps a traditional folk audience, songs which will bring in new audiences, songs which go to your heart, songs which tell stories. Now, when I describe it like that, it's a wonder you actually get up in the morning and write music.
1: <laughs> Thank you. That's very empathetic. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I do. I mean, probably I think a lot. I don't like the term overthink because, you know, that that's the kind of like a bit derogatory.
2: Maz, you're an artist, you're a creative, you overthink.
4: <laughs> the two things <laughs> go with
2: the territory.
1: I guess so, yeah. I do think a lot and and sometimes I wish that I... um. Didn't think quite so much and could just go with the flow a bit more and, and trust. But yeah, I do find that there's there's a lot of different boxes that you've got to take especially now. Like I don't know, it's quite easy to look at music in the past and think that things were easier. So I don't know if that is the truth, but I do feel like making music now as a living is incredibly difficult, and therefore you're more reliant on things like getting syncs. So that's like your music being used in TV and film and stuff. Um, and what they're looking for is very different to what an audience, say at the stables, is looking for. You know, if, if I get up in front of an audience in a in a live venue, often what that audience wants is connection, you know, lyrically, and connection to me as an artist. And they want stories, and they want to be able to lose themselves in in this evening of of music and stories. And that isn't what you know, TV and film are looking for when yeah. they're trying to pick their music. And so. As an artist, you're like, "Oh, you know I need to make a living because I want to be able to keep going, but these things are in direct contradiction to each other, and um I don't know, I don't know the way around it i I, I think you try and just get a variety of everything on an album, but also you can't be led by the money thing you you've got to be led by your by your soul and, and by your need to express um but at the same time, like i say you you, you want to keep doing it so yeah, it is. It is really hard to get it right, and I, I definitely don't have any answers.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I've known you a while, quite a while. We've spoken before on the radio. And there's a sense talking to you today and in hearing your music, a sense of calm about your music. And I think you touched on this actually in your last answer, because I wonder whether this is in any way due to you reaching a point in your career where you're focusing on writing songs that you like, that you enjoy, which work for you. And then if listeners connect, then that's great. If they connect on any, any given level, that's wonderful. It's a bonus rather than the primary aim, the primary obsession in thinking about the listeners.
1: Yeah, I think that has been a shift. And again, I think COVID and lockdown was really big for that because there was no audience for about two years. And I wasn't sure if there ever was going to be an audience again. So I kind of found a great freedom. And once I found that freedom of making what I wanted to make and not having the pressure of, you know, I had in my mind of kind of pleasing this imaginary audience, which was probably an illusion anyway from the start cuz i think an audience just wants you to be you um but yeah finding that freed and then you know it all i, I followed it and it all went well so and i, I didn't lose any of my followers and i it, the world didn't implode mm-hmm. so i'm i'm carrying on with that and and i think also what's helped is that i've um so i've written a musical and i've also written a novel and both of those things are are kind of on their way so it has taken pressure off my music in terms of like making a living but also in terms of getting all of my artistic expression out i have different outlets now and i can explore i can explore different things in different um forms and that's been massive so music can just be fun now you know
2: and i say this without a hint of being condescending but your creative life has grown up
1: um, yeah, yeah. I mean, I probably can't have a perspective on that. Can you? I don't think. I think that's for people around you to comment on um, in any area of your life when when you've had some maturity. I feel like that's something maybe you don't have a perspective on. But I do have a perspective that um, I'm not as stressed out and tense all the time, so that's
2: good. Well, hopefully you're not stressed out and tense now because you're going to sing for us. Uh, we'll talk about your show at the Stables uh, after this track. What are you going to do for us?
1: I'm going to sing a live version of my latest single which is called Santorini
4: Winter's hard. I know I let it get to me Stay Dreaming of the sun I have this fantasy of sleeping By the waves in Santorini And loving you right Like I always should have done Listening to the fire Let's count to ten. Do you think you could love me again?
2: Absolutely wonderful, uh, as always. Mazo O'Connor, Santorini. No doubt a track you'll be playing at the stables uh, when you come to uh, stage two. What are you going to be bringing, Maz?
1: Absolutely. I'll be playing that. Yeah. Um, So yeah, I'm going on tour in September and October and coming to the Stables on October the 5th and it's going to be an intimate solo show. It's going to be me, my guitar, my piano, and I'm going to be playing songs from my latest album and then Santorini's latest single and then a selection of older songs from previous albums. And I'm going to put a call out to my mailing list and social media to ask, which songs from previous albums people want to hear
2: (laughs) Maz absolutely lovely to catch up with you as always
1: thank you for having me thank you for the lovely questions
2: there's Maz O'Connor completing our wonderful trio of guests on this episode of Turn Up The Volume for tickets for Maz's show do go to stables.org and for more info about Maz it's mazoconnor.com and of course Maz O'Connor on social media Thanks, as always, for taking the time to listen to turn up the volume. If you enjoy it, please tell your friends to seek it out. And don't forget to follow the podcast if you're not really doing so. That way you'll get notified of all future episodes. And we'd always be really grateful if you could just leave us a quick review and a rating on your podcast apps. It really helps to get the word out there. It's been a real pleasure to put this episode together for you. I hope you've enjoyed listening to it as much as I've enjoyed making it. I'll be back in a month with more great artists for you. Until then, from me, Nick Coffer, and all the team at The Stables, is goodbye for now.